Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Today I'm starting a, a four-week series just simply called Say Yes, um, and we are leading up to Advent. Uh, how many, just by raise of hand, if you'll be honest this morning, how many, you, how many of you in this room are yes people? How many of you are yes people? I'm raising my hand because I am. Um, several of you, how many of you have no problem whatsoever saying no? I need to hang out with you, all right? <laughs> um, so we have some yes people in the room, and then we have people in the room that have no problem. Maybe you're a little bit more uh, sanctified than the rest of us. I don't know. But Ephesians chapter 2. So for the four, next four weeks, we're going to be talking about saying yes, and you'll get a greater um, uh, clarity to that here uh, in just a moment. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse number 1, also up on the screen. Paul wrote these words, Once you were dead. Because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else." Now, if I were to stop there, that's a pretty depressing place to stop. So we're going to read on verse four, uh, two of the greatest words in all of scripture, but God, all right, verse four, but God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when we, uh, when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. Verse seven, so God can point to us in all future ages as examples of incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. And then verse eight, God saved you by his grace when you believed and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. I'm going to stop there uh, today. The next three weeks, we're going to look at other passages in Ephesians as we look at what it means to say yes to Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you, God, that your word is alive, it's powerful, and that it still speaks to us today. Lord, I just ask that in these next few moments together that you would captivate our hearts, our minds, and our lives in these next few moments together as we give ourselves to your living, transforming word. And God, I pray that you would help us to hear from you this morning. Speak to every heart in this room. Speak to every life in this room. Challenge us, convict us, encourage us, and draw us closer to you. And Holy Spirit, help me to speak not a single word of my own, but only that which comes from you this morning. Help me to declare your word with boldness, with passion, with clarity and simplicity. And God, may I decrease and you increase and be the focus of our time together, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Again, by telling you a story, speaker and author Carol Kent was on the fast track to being an absentee parent until her young son, Jason, made a simple observation she recalls, quote, we were eating breakfast together and I had on an old pair of slacks and a fuzzy old sweater. And he flashed his baby blue eyes at me over his cereal bowl and he said, mommy, 
you look so pretty today. And I didn't even have makeup on. So I said, honey, why would you say I look pretty today? Normally, I'm dressed in a suit and high heels. And he said, when you look like that, I know you're going someplace. But when you look like this, I know you're mine. And his words were like an arrow piercing my heart. She said, I realized I might fail at being a godly Christian mother because I was saying yes to so many speaking engagements. So she said, I got on my knees with my precious appointment book and I offered it to God. You know, we say yes to a lot of things in life, but are we saying yes to the right thing? Are we saying yes to the one Jesus, who really matters. And here's the reality we have to wrestle with. Every time we say yes to something, we are inevitably saying no to something else. There is only one yes that I believe really matters, and we cannot afford to miss it when it comes to that yes. For the next four weeks, we are going to examine the powerful implications of saying yes to Jesus. We're gonna consider this question, have I said yes to too many other things keeping me from giving God in his kingdom my undivided yes? I can say yes to several things in life. Most of them may not be bad. It may be another job promotion, another, another activity for my kid, another appointment, but the reality is, if I do not say yes to Jesus, if I do not give him my undivided yes, then all of the other yeses really don't matter. When it's all said and done, we will discover that our yes to Jesus is absolutely worth it, and it's worth it all. It's worth saying no to a lot of other things so that I can give God my very best yes that he deserves. Jesus notes this principle, and I've already made reference to it already in the uh, time of prayer, but he notes this principle in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew, or Matthew 6, verse 33. He says, seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he will give you everything you need. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything will be added unto thee. That is, that is the message that Jesus says to his disciples. Seek the kingdom first. Make that your priority. Make that your focus and then everything else will kind of fall into place. Make sure you get that yes correct. Our yes to Jesus is worth it. Because it ushers in a change of status, which is what we're going to talk about today. It frees you and me to live the Christ-like life that he has prepared for us. It offers you and me a renewed purpose, which we'll talk about in two weeks. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, says, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works and then it also, when we say yes to Jesus, it gives you and me better access to God. And we're going to talk about that access that we have as a result of saying yes to Jesus. So today we're going to focus our attention on the status change that happens when we say yes to Jesus. And the first few minutes of this may be a little bit depressing, but please do not tune me out because we need to understand who we were before Christ in order to understand the significance of what Christ has done. 
So I want to begin by, first of all, talking about our status before Christ. What did life look like for you, for me, and for humanity in general before we said yes to Jesus? What was life like? Let me read again Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, listen, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is how Paul describes our condition and our status before saying yes to Jesus, or really before Jesus comes onto the scene. We were children of wrath. We were condemned. Uh, We were set apart or alienated from God. And so what what does this mean? What does Paul mean in these three verses when he talks about our status before Christ? First of all, before Christ, we were dead. Now, the implication here is not physical death, but he's talking more about spiritual death. We've been severed. We've been alienated. We've been separated from God, and we cannot get to him. Essentially, it is as if that we are here, and there is this incredible valley or this gap that exists between me and God, and I cannot get to him. We are separated. We are alienated from God before Christ or without him. This spiritual death or this alienation from God is actually pictured in the very beginning all the way back to the garden. Remember when Adam and Eve were in the garden and God placed them there, they were to care over the animals and and they were to take care of the vegetation of the land. They were to live and they had intimacy and fellowship with God, but then sin entered the equation. And sin screwed up the perfect fellowship that existed between God and between humanity. And we get a picture of this separation in Genesis chapter three. Listen to what happens as a result of sin. This is what happens to Adam and Eve and the relationship they had with God. It said, the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, look at this, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden. They were were excommunicated. They were sent out of the place where they had perfect intimacy and fellowship with God. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the life to the tree of life. So Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden and we get this picture that this intimacy and this fellowship that they once had, they no longer could have. They were alienated from God. They, that relationship had been severed because of sin. Now death here is not a figure of speech, but it is a reference to everyone's spiritual condition outside of Christ. We know from scripture, it's clear that God is the source of life So if you and I, if we are detached from God, who is the source of life, then we have no life at all. We get a a picture or a glimpse of this in the Old Testament. If you remember the story uh, of one of the judges, Samson, Samson was the man who had incredible strength and, and he took the Nazarite vow. Part of taking the Nazarite vow included him not cutting his hair. 
And if you remember, there was this woman who came along by the name of Delilah who was trying to persuade Samson to reveal the secret of his strength so the Philistines could come in and destroy Samson and destroy uh, the Israelite people. And he would not tell her, but eventually she coerced him into revealing his secret. His hair was cut and the spirit of God left him. There was no life in him, and he was not able to fight against the Philistine people. So we even get a picture of that when we are detached from God, the source of our strength and the source of our life. When we are detached from him, we have no life whatsoever. Jesus reiterates this point in the New Testament. We see in in John chapter 15, verses four and five, Jesus says, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, Jesus says, you are the branches, and whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. When we are detached from Christ, who is the source of life. When we have been severed from him before him, we have no life and we can do nothing. Paul notes this in his letter to the church at Colossae as well. I read it in our opening text. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and listen, and in him, in Jesus, in Christ, all things hold together. So if we are detached, if we are severed from Christ, then there is no holding together that's going to take place. We live our life in chaos, in confusion, in destruction, and that is a result of what sin does. This spiritual death is then a direct result of our trespasses and our sins, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter two. Now, let me kind of um, outline for you, and, and you may or may not care about this, but I think it will help us to understand our condition before Jesus Christ comes onto the scene. Uh, in Pauline language, so in most of Paul's letters, Paul wrote 13 of the New Testament letters. There's 27 um, books in the New Testament. Paul wrote 13 of them. And when Paul uses the words trespasses and sin, uh, usually he uses them rather interchangeably. So when we talk about trespasses, when we talk about sin, uh, when we read it from Paul's perspective, he usually means the same thing. But there is a little bit of a nuance in these two words. Um, trespass can simply mean a slight deviation from the right path, a slight deviation from the right path, while sin can mean missing the mark or falling short of the standard. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God is our standard. Perfection is our standard, but because of sin, we all fall short. So trespass can mean a deviation from the right path, while sin can mean missing the mark or falling short of the standard. And in a sense, before God, before we say yes to Jesus, we are both rebels because we've deviated from the right path, and we are also failures because we have missed the mark. And as a result of our trespasses and our sin, we are what? We are alienated from life with God. 
Look at Ephesians 4, verse 18. It says, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Even Isaiah will make reference to this. In chapter 59, verse two, Isaiah says, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Is that my microphone doing that? Um, I feel like there's someone out there that's just tapping randomly. Um, Okay, maybe it's just me. Anyway, so Isaiah makes that point as well in chapter 59, verse two. This spiritual death as a result of sin, it then leaves our souls unsatisfied, empty, dead, and lifeless. Apart from Christ, apart from God, our souls are empty, unsatisfied, empty, and lifeless. Our eyes are blind to the glory of Christ in front of us. When we, when we have no relationship with Jesus, when we are not pursuing his presence, when we've never before Christ, our eyes are blind to the glory of Christ in front of us. Our ears are deaf to the Holy Spirit's voice. We have no love for God and we desire no fellowship with God's people before Christ. John Stott said this, life without God, however physically fit and mentally alert the person may be, is a living death. What a beautiful description of what life without God looks like. Life without God, however physically fit we may be and mentally mentally alert the person may be, it is, John says, a living death because we do not have Christ and Christ is the source of our life. St. Augustine, I made reference to this already. He says, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds rest in you. And and so that, that backs up the point that apart from God, if we're living life apart from God, our life is empty, our souls are unsatisfied, we have no spiritual rest, and our life is spiritually dead apart from Jesus Christ. Before Christ, so not only were we dead, but before Christ, we were also enslaved. Paul says that we were walking in our trespasses and sins. This idea of walking in, it just means we were living our life uh, in in this constant state of sinning and and in trespasses. This type of living, indulging in the sinful life brought no freedom. It only brought more bondage to humanity. We see this picture, Paul talks about being slaves to sin. In Romans chapter six, verses 17 through 19, thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin had become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So Paul will talk about how before Christ, we were enslaved because we were slaves to sin and not slaves to righteousness. Number two, we see that, uh, or this way of life characterized one who had not said yes to Christ and it influenced our thoughts and behaviors. Colossians chapter three, verse seven says, put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil, desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming in these you two once walked when you were living in them. So you, you hear the, the past tense language. You once walked in these ways. This was what your life looked like before you said yes to Christ. We used to follow, as Paul says, the the course of this world. 
Uh, in the Greek, the course of this world just simply means the age of this world, this age of evil and darkness. And, and, and the, the description of world just simply makes no reference to God whatsoever. It is this complete secularism. Both age and world, they suggest a social value system that is completely alien to God. And it also, and I'm not going to take time to read it today, but it reflects the description of life given by Paul in Romans chapter 1. If you read Romans chapter 1, you will see this, this moral decline of humanity. And, and they start uh, engaging in, in activities that are sinful and evil. And, and they're suppressing the truth. And they um, are, are exchanging the truth of God for a lie. And eventually God will hand them over to their sinful Desires, And so we get this picture of, of confusion and immorality and sinfulness in Romans chapter 1 because they were following the course or the age of this world. We were held captive by the devil or the ruler of the kingdom of this world. Uh, the influence of the enemy was at work in us before Christ. Obedience to the wrong ruler, listen, is disobedience to the right one. Obedience to the wrong ruler is disobedience to the right one. We were enslaved, as Paul says, to the passions of our flesh. And he just simply means that this speaks of our fallen, self-centered nature. We took pleasure in wrong and unnatural desires, creating perversion. We were subject to oppressive influences from within uh, our flesh and our fallen nature, but also oppressive influences from without the world and a secular culture. So our position before Christ, our status before Christ, we are dead, we are enslaved, but we are also condemned. Before Christ, we were condemned. He says, by our very nature, Paul says in verse three, we are called what? Children of wrath. Our nature was godless and our nature was deserving of God's punishment. Certainly, this is a radical disease, spiritual death, captivity, and condemnation. That is a, a radical disease that needs to be dealt with. And John Stott says this, a radical disease requires a radical remedy. And the remedy to our spiritual death, the remedy to our spiritual captivity, and the remedy to the condemnation that we deserve because of sin, the remedy to that is a radical remedy, and that is Jesus Christ. Our status before Christ, we are dead, we are enslaved, and we are condemned. But I'm thankful for those two words in Ephesians chapter two, verse four, but God. How many are thankful for those two, two, two words? I've never been so thankful for the English language in my life in this particular instance, but God, who is rich in mercy. Our status, our new status, was made possible by Christ. Look at, the, look at the text again, Ephesians 2, verses four through nine. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him. And he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. What we see here is that a status change from spiritual death to spiritual life is possible because of one man. 
And that man is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Paul talks about it in Romans chapter five. Listen to how he describes it. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, going all the way back to Genesis chapter three in the garden, it says, uh, for, as one, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, speaking of Christ, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This status change, and this is what I want you to see this morning, this change of status our old life to our new life before Christ and after Christ has everything to do with God and it has nothing to do with humanity. I don't want any of us to think in this room that, that we earned the spot that we are in today or that we, can, uh, that we can work hard enough to receive this new position or this new status. It has everything to do with God and nothing to do with humanity. Notice uh, in our text, God is the one who intervenes. We were deemed or called children of wrath, but we get to verse four, but God who is rich in mercy. God is the one who intervenes and he steps in and acts first. He takes the initiative. He acts first. We read in verse four, but God, God is the one who provides a way of release from our state of hopelessness. God is the one in verse five who made us alive with Christ. God is the one who raised us up with Christ in heavenly places. And we know that God is the one who made us sit with him in heavenly places. And I want you to hear this this morning. God's motivation to act first, it had nothing to do with anything in us. And it had everything to do with his perfect character. God is the one who acts first. And it has everything to do with his perfect character. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 7 verses six through eight. It says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Listen to what Moses pens down as he's speaking to the children of Israel. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you. It has nothing to do with anything in us, but has everything to do with the perfect character of our heavenly father. He is rich in mercy and he is grace giving and he expresses his love. Let's look at this character. Paul talks about it. God is rich in mercy, chapter four, or excuse me, chapter two, verse four. We read in Exodus 34, verse six, speaking of God's character, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Psalm 103, verse eight says, the Lord is what? Merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We were dead and we were helpless and only God's mercy could reach the helpless. I am grateful and I'm thankful for the mercy of God who can reach me even in my deepest, darkest place and he can extend his hand and redeem me and rescue me. Mercy is love for the down 
and out. He is rich in mercy. God is also abounding in great love. Romans chapter five, verse eight. I love this verse. God showed his love for us in that while we were still, what? Sinners, Christ died for us. Paul didn't say that when you got your life together, then Christ would die for you, or when you reached perfection, then he would die. No, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Because of his love, he gave and he sacrificed. God was strictly motivated by love. And we also know that God is grace-giving. Here's the reality, church. We deserve nothing at God's hand but judgment on account of our trespasses and sins. We deserve judgment. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. It's what we deserve. The second half of that verse says, but the gift of God is eternal life. Only God's grace could rescue you and me and a sinful humanity from the desert. Not our works, not our efforts. The only way that we go from children of wrath to children of God is by God's incredible grace. There's a hymn, Grace Greater Than Our Sin. Let me just read these words to you and listen to the powerful words. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the lamb was spilt. Sin and despair, like the sea waves cold, threaten the soul with infinite loss. Grace that is greater, yes, grace untold, points to the refuge, the mighty cross. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace, freely bestowed on all who believe, all who are longing to see his face, will you this moment his grace receive. The chorus, grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all of our sin. I am so thankful for the matchless, incredible grace of God. We deserve judgment, but because of God's grace, greater than our sin, he has rescued us redeemed us, and we have a new status in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Grace is God's undeserved favor. We don't deserve it, but because he loved us so much, he gave. And as a result of his giving, we have been justified. We have been declared not guilty by his free grace. Paul said in Romans 3, 23 and 24, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. We are made not guilty by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So here is my question for us this morning. What are the benefits of God's merciful, loving, grace-giving, and kind action that he demonstrates in Christ Jesus? Number one, we are released to live the Christ-like life. We're gonna talk about that next week. Ephesians chapter four, five, and six. Number two, we are offered a renewed purpose and plan in life. When we say yes to Jesus and we move from a child of wrath to a child of God, we have a redeemed and renewed purpose. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. 
And because of this status change, when we say yes to Jesus, we are given better access to God. We can come boldly into the throne room of God where we will receive his grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. These are gonna be our focal points for the next three weeks. But what now? What do we do? What do we do with this message regarding a status change? What do we do with this word? How are we to respond to this change that has occurred? I wanna read one more story to you and worship team if you wanna come. In 1904, William Borden graduated from a Chicago high school. As heir to the Borden Dairy Estate, he was already a millionaire. For his high school graduation present, his parents gave him a trip around the world. As the young man traveled through Asia, the Middle East, and Europe, he felt a growing burden for the world's hurting people. Finally, Borden wrote home to say, quote, I'm going to give my life to prepare for the mission field. At the same time, he wrote two words in the back of his Bible, no reserves. Indeed, Borden held nothing back during his college years at Yale University. He became a pillar in the Christian community. One entry in his personal journal that defined the source of his spiritual strength simply said, say no to self and yes to Jesus every time. During his first semester at Yale, Borden started a small prayer group that would transform campus life. This little group gave birth to a movement that spread across the campus. By the end of his first year, 150 freshmen were meeting for a weekly Bible study and prayer. By the time Bill Borden was a senior, 1,000 of Yale's 1,300 students were meeting in such groups. Borden also strategized with his fellow Christians to make sure every student on campus heard the gospel, and he was often seen ministering to the downtrodden in the streets of New Haven. But his real passion was for missions. And once he narrowed his missionary call to the Kansu people in China, Borden never wavered. Upon graduation from Yale, Borden wrote two more words in the back of his Bible, no retreats. Keeping with that commitment, Borden turned down several high-paying job offers, enrolling in seminary instead. And after graduating, he immediately went to Egypt to learn Arabic because of his intent to work with Muslims in China. While in Egypt, he contracted spinal meningitis. Within a month, 25-year-old William Borden was dead. Prior to his death, Borden had written two more words in the back of his Bible, underneath the words, no reserves and no retreats. And he penned these words, no regrets. Stormy Omortian pen these words, trust that God has your best interest in mind and be willing to do what he asks of you, even if you don't understand why. Obedience starts with having a heart that says yes to God. If you want to know what obedience looks like, if you want to know how to respond to this message today that before Christ we were dead enslaved and condemned, but because of one man, Jesus Christ, we have been set free. We have been redeemed. We now have a new status. We are made alive with Christ. And there are so many incredible benefits that come along with that. We're going to talk about over the next couple of weeks. But when we say yes to Jesus, 
that is the beginning. That is the start of obedience. I want to invite you to stand with me this morning, if you would. This what now question um, honestly may look different for everyone in this room today. Didn't want to give you necessarily 10 simple steps to respond to today's message because I I want you here in just a moment to spend a minute or two really asking the Holy Spirit to reveal to you what does your yes look like? What does obedience look like for you? Without Christ, our life is empty, unsatisfying, hopeless, and spiritually dead. But God has made a way with those two words, but God. But God has made a way to bring us from spiritual death to spiritual life. And how do we move from spiritual death to spiritual life that occurs by simply trusting in Jesus and what Christ did for you, did for me, and did for all of humanity? I want you to bow your heads for just a moment. Paul makes it clear we have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus. We're not saved by our works. We're not saved by our efforts. We are saved because of God's incredible love, who's motivated by love, rich in mercy, grace-giving and kind. So really the only response to this message, to this word, is to simply say yes to Jesus. We can say yes to a lot of things in life, but the only yes that matters and the most important yes is saying yes to Christ. We certainly live in a culture today where we live pretty busy lives. There are a lot of things that we say yes to. There are a lot of things that we try to fit into our schedules every single day. And what usually happens, and I think we're all guilty of this at some point or some time in our life, what usually happens is we start filling our schedule with this activity and this thing I've got to do, this thing I've got to get done, I've got to go to this event or this meeting or this activity. And then we plan all of those things And then we somehow try to fit my yes to Jesus into that already busy schedule. And because we're busy, what ends up happening is those things that we threw into the schedule at the very end end up getting removed. But I would ask us and encourage us and challenge us this morning Even as Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things will be added unto you. Let's say yes to Jesus first and then allow all of those other things to take their place in and around the thing that is most important. 
and that is our relationship with Jesus. The greatest yes you will ever say is yes to him.